You are now listening to the June 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. And begin our program with Christianese 101. Grace, and I am your host for the Christianese 101 program. Today, we will be learning about two words that aren't exactly biblically used terms. However, they are words that are relevant to studying the Bible. We will be learning about Hebrew and Greek. Both are the languages that the Bible was originally written in. As you study the Bible, you become more naturally inclined to want to learn about the languages that the Bible was written in. This is because understanding the words that the Bible is translated from is crucial for a better and deeper understanding of the concepts in the Bible. The more I study the scriptures, the more concept words I learned what the original meaning based on the Hebrew or Greek word. And I am sure many of you listeners feel just as curious when you are studying the Bible. First, Hebrew is the language that was spoken by the Israelites in the time of the Old Testament. The word itself means a traveler. The father of the Hebrew people was Abraham, and he left his homeland from Ur of the Chaldeans, later known as Babylon, to Canaan by crossing the Euphrates River. And thus the Canaanites call Abraham a Hebrew. So Hebrew refers to Abraham and his descendants. However, scholars argue that Hebrew was the language used by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is because the book of Genesis, which was written by Moses, had to be in Hebrew because that was the language he spoke. But let's remember that Hebrew is the language that Abraham and his descendants used as well as the language that the Old Testament was written in. Then what is Greek? Greek is the language the New Testament was written in. But why? Why was the Bible written in two different languages, even though the Bible was written for the Israelites? To find out, we need to study a bit of history. There is a gap of about 400 years between the last chapter of the Old Testament book, Malachi, and the first chapter of the New Testament book, Matthew. During those 400 years, the rulers of the world changed from Babylon to Greece. During that time, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world, and therefore the conquered cities came under the influence of Hellenism, and naturally, Greek became the universal language, just like English is today. Because Jesus came during the time when Rome ruled the world, most of the people, the Gentiles, still spoke Greek. So the New Testament was written in Greek, mainly for them. Let's add one more language here. Have you heard of Aramaic? According to scholars, even though the Israelites at the time of Jesus' life were under the rule of the Roman Empire, they still spoke Aramaic. And most scholars believe that Jesus spoke Aramaic too. Aramaic was the language used by Babylonians, Assyrians, and Persians. 
then why did the Israelites speak Aramaic? The reason is that Israel was conquered by Babylon, and even after being released from their rule, the Israelites continued to speak Aramaic. Parts of the books of Ezra and Daniel were written Aramaic, and many phrases used in the New Testament, such as Tali Takumi, Ifatha, and Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, are all Aramaic as well. I hope this helped you to understand Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic a little better. Hebrew was used in the Old Testament mostly concerning the Israelites. Greek was used in the New Testament for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and Aramaic was spoken by the Israelites during the era of captivity in Babylon and carried through to the New Testament as well. This is all for today, and I hope you tune into our program next week. Goodbye. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Pardon 
for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord. Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Do you remember the drama that unfolded during President Clinton's scandal with White House intern Monica Lewinsky? I'm guessing you do if you're certainly over the age of 40. And even if you don't, we're going to learn from that drama of that historic time frame in Bill Clinton's presidency. Today, we continue our teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And we're going to focus in on excuses today, the excuses that we give to ourselves, the excuses that we give to others. And it's in this trigger It's in this stage that we start to justify what we just did. In other words, we try to convince other people. We try to convince ourselves how acting out in sin, how looking at pornography is actually a good idea. For those of you who are new to the podcast, the sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit this bondage or this addiction to pornography, make no doubt about it, man. This Porn is a series of predictable habits. That's really good news to understand that, that these are predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. The bad news is that we don't realize it, but the better news is that as you listen, as you review, and as you start to apply this material to your lives, you will break free from the bondage of pornography. And you're going to do that by the grace of Almighty God. Jesus Christ did not die for your sin and rise from the dead for you to remain an addicted Christian. So let's get started with today's lesson. 
This is titled, Lessons Learned from Bill Clinton. Hebrews 12, verse 1 reads, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, that is just an awesome passage to even read and comprehend and and think about, that, that you endured the cross for the joy of despising our shame. And your work is done. You are now seated at the right hand of your Father. And Lord God, you give us this unbelievable privilege now to follow you. So thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy as we pursue your purity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alrighty, yeah, if you guys didn't grab a worksheet, go ahead and do that. Turn to the first page in your binder with the actual diagram of the spiral itself. So starting at trigger number one, once again, this is the awareness phase that we are consciously aware that I may be in trouble at this point and I've got a couple choices to, uh, to exit the cycle right then and there. I can confess, I can flee, and I can certainly pray. If I don't do that, then I move into um, my unhealthy thoughts or my shame, whatever my shame story is, that moves me down to the actual temptation. Temptation is my desire to commit the actual sin itself But before I do that, I may or may not move into a a series of resistance. I'm going to try not to do whatever it is that I I want to do, and I'm going to try to do it by myself. Now keep in mind, you can exit the the spiral at any time. Confess, you can call, and you can uh, pray. You can do all three. If I don't exit at resistance, I'm going to start rationalizing my sin. Basically, I'm going to talk myself into my sin And that's just one very quick, I deserve this. And boom, I'm through that. I'm going to then move into hiding for the very purpose of committing the sin. Trigger number seven there is acting out in sin. And then I'm going to move into isolation or uh, relational withdrawal. Trigger number eight there. Because I don't like myself, I don't like people, and I don't like God. So I just want to be left alone. And tonight, that brings us to excuses or justification of what I just did. So that's where we are tonight. We are justifying what we just did. It's, uh, it's an excuse. I find it unbelievably comical that my uh, example of justification has to deal with an old president, since we're talking about presidential elections. And all the drama that's going on with that right now. And it actually has to deal with not Mrs. Clinton, but Mr. Clinton. Keep my comments to myself when it comes to the political scene. But let's review. Let's go back a few years in 1998 when President Clinton was governing our country here. So you guys obviously will remember this. Um, This was 1998. It was in January. 
And President Clinton says, I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm not going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. I remember that clip. I remember him looking at the camera and telling us that. So Robert Bennett, who is Clinton's attorney, he stated that there is no sexual relationship between Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. That's what he said. President Clinton was asked for further clarification on that statement by the grand jury. This is what President Clinton said, and I'm going to read this verbatim. President Clinton said, Well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is. If the, if he, if is means is, and never has been, that is not, well, that's one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. Now, if someone asked me on that day, are you having any kind of sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky? That is, ask me a question in the present tense. I would have said no. And that would have been a completely true statement. So seven months later, this is in August, President Clinton says this, after all of that. So that was in January. This is now in August. This afternoon in this room from this chair, I testified before the office of the independent counsel and the grand jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all of my actions, both public and private, and that is why I'm speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And while my answers were legally correct, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. But I told the grand jury today, and I say to you now, that at no time did I ask anyone to lie or hide or destroy evidence or to take any unlawful action. I know that my public comments and silence about this matter gave a false impression. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. I can only tell you that I was motivated by many factors. First, by my desire to protect myself from the embarrassment of my own conduct. I was also very concerned about protecting my family. The fact that these questions were being asked in a politically inspired lawsuit, which has since been dismissed, was a consideration too. The independent counsel investigation moved on to my staff and my friends and then to my private life, and now the investigation itself is under investigation. This has gone on for way too long. It's cost too much and it's hurt too many innocent people. And now that this matter is between me and the two people I most love, my wife and my daughter, oh, and our God, I must put it right and I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to do so. Nothing is more important to me personally, but it is private and I intend to reclaim my family life for my family. Besides, it's nobody's business but ours. Even presidents have private lives. It's time to stop the pursuit of personal destruction and the prying into private lives. 
and get on with our national life. Our country has been distracted by this matter for too long, and I take my responsibility for my part in all of this. And that's all I can do. And now it's time to move on. So tonight, I ask you to turn away from this spectacle of the past seven months to repair the fabric of our national discourse and to return our attention to all the challenges and the promise of the American century. So Bill Clinton, he was the 42nd president of the United States. He was impeached by the House of Representatives on two charges, one on perjury and the other obstruction of justice. Charges stemmed from his extramarital affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky and also his testimony about their affair during a sexual harassment lawsuit filed against Paula Jones. And he was acquitted of these charges by the Senate later in February. Now, it's easy to pick on President Clinton, right? And you see the fallout from all of that. At the end of the day, he had sex with somebody who wasn't his wife. All the lying, all the lawsuits, all the betrayal. And at the end of the day, we're all rationalizers in this room, right? We've all rationalized our sin. We've all justified our behavior. We always have an excuse, don't we? We always have an absurd answer. And it really is absurd. Like when you are literally at that rationalization trigger number five, when you find yourself starting to talk yourself into doing something, if you would call your partner and go, this is the excuse that I'm giving myself right now. This is why I'm going to talk myself. And you would go, you're a fool. And we need someone to call us a fool at that moment because if we don't, if we don't have somebody to shock us out of our complacency, we're just going to continue to do what we've always done, right? It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. If, the, if he, if is means is and never has been, well, but see that kind of answer, it just makes total sense to us because we're caught in this spiral. I'm praying for those of us who have been stuck in the sex spiral that we begin to see how ridiculous our excuses really are for us to realize that we are so isolated we're just so alone that we think this stuff up and that we actually talk ourselves into believing our own lies. And if you've been stuck in the spiral for some time, maybe you're beginning to realize that no one buys this stuff anymore. And after time, not even, not even you, you're going to believe it. Maybe you're a spouse who thinks that you're losing your mind because the excuses and all the things that just don't make sense. Well, you're not losing your mind. You have no idea how many wives tell me that. The reality is that your husband can't keep his story straight. So he continues to make things up as he goes. He's blaming you all the way through it. And in fact, it's really scary, isn't it? How good he is at this. But it's not going to last long. His foundation is built on shifting sand and his world will come crashing down around him. That's just the way it plays out. In fact, let me recommend a book for all of you on the other side of sexual sin or any kind of addiction. 
Um, it's called Smoke and Mirrors, The Magical World of Chemical Dependency. And it's by Dorothy Marie England. It's going to show you all the games that we as addicts play. And we play games because we, well, we think we're still in control. But the reality is that we're just isolated and alone. For those of us wrapped up in bondage uh, to pornography or any other addiction, did, did you know that it only takes one godly friend to change your life? One person. Notice I said godly friend, uh, not some knucklehead that encourages you to keep on doing what you're doing. That's not a friend. Just one godly man, if you're a man, and one godly woman, if you're a woman. And don't fool yourself into thinking that it can work the other way. Proverbs 13.20 reads, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 17.17 A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So do you have a friend that's going to speak truth to you when you get all sideways with this stuff? Do you have someone who will love you that much to get in your face and call you out? And if you don't, I want to encourage you to go out of your way today to be a friend. And most of us, we don't have friends because we don't know how to be a friend. Uh, pornography specifically makes us antisocial. And a key way to start new friendships in our lives is by serving at your church. When you get involved and you start to serve other people, man, just watch what happens. It is so cool. Uh, simply go just... Ask somebody, ask the pastor what you need help with. Something as simple as being a greeter and, and handing out bulletins will work miracles in your life. And lastly, I, I pray that your online life is the same as your real life, that you recognize that you are indeed justifying why you don't need an internet filter on your phone or your computer or your tablet. That's exactly what justification is. What exactly are your excuses today? Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, let me invite you to our weekly Grace Group. It's a weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives. It doesn't matter if you're single, together, divorced. Everybody is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. I would love to meet you. We are in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, and you can email me your questions. I would love to hear from you. Visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is is the very name. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and I look forward to our time again.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The King, based on Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. I think all of us know how important the heart is, the human heart, not just the physical heart, but the heart that makes up who you are is to no matter what it is that you're doing. So whether you're in a relationship or whether you're thinking about athletics, we know that the heart is critical. Uh, You've all seen a relationship where you have a guy whose heart isn't in it or the girl isn't in it. 
In that relationship, we know that when that heart is not there, uh, the relationship looks like something very sad. Uh, The same thing happens with athletics, doesn't it? Uh, You've seen somebody whose heart has given up on a game and their countenance drops and they're just not quite in the game like they ought to be. Well, I think the same thing goes true with God and our relationship with God. In fact, this morning we're going to be thinking about Isaiah who has this incredible vision of the Lord. He comes before God. And what we know in context is this picks up on the backside of Isaiah 5 where we've been told that the people of God have not had a heart for God. They have not been devoted to Him. Their heart has not been in their religion. And here in in the midst of this vision, Isaiah is confronted with the reality of where he stands before God and where his heart has been. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Here what we have seen so far is that Isaiah is a prophet who is living in the days of Uzziah, a great king who had 52 years of prosperous reign over Israel, over Judah. And and many of those years were good years, years of prosperity. Uh, We know uh, towards the end that Uzziah sinned against God and was struck with leprosy and he was unclean, but for much of his reign, he was considered to be a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. What we're going to see today is that God gives Isaiah a vision of himself. And I think that we're going to see is, is that in chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, there were those who were drawing iniquity with cords of falsehood or lies. They were men of, of unclean lips. And they were mocking Isaiah's prophecy that God was a God of justice. And as he said that God was going to draw near in justice and righteousness. You'll remember those groups of unclean lips in Isaiah 5 were crying out what? Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come that we may know it. In other words, they were not fearful amidst their sin of the Holy God that was about to draw near. Well, in Isaiah 6... As this earthly king dies, amidst their prosperity and peace, the prophet Isaiah receives a vision of another king, of his heavenly king, who is exalted with his glory, pouring out into all of creation. That same holy king, looking at today, we're going to see two things about him. That same holy king, who saves those who confess, will also harden those who suppress. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. If you're taking notes, write that down. The same holy king who saves those who confess, hardens those who suppress. And we'll see that first in verses 1 to 4. He is really devoted to justice, this holy king. Now look with me again in your copy of God's Word, we'll see that. In Isaiah chapter 6, as we read from there again, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. In the year of King Uzziah that he died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What a vision. Here Isaiah sees a heavenly king as his earthly king dies. 
This year, the year that the great earthly king Uzziah died, what we have is God peeling back the veil that separated man from God so that Isaiah could get a a glimpse of the spiritual world that had been hidden from his eyes and so that he could see the greater heavenly king in the temple, exalted above every earthly authority. What a vision. And he beholds in that vision God sitting upon his throne, which is in heaven. His feet in this vision are actually resting on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the temple on earth. That was considered to be the footstool of God, where God met with his people. And not only that, what we find is is that this is the place on this footstool where God would make annual sacrifice made to him to bring atonement between him and his people. Now, what's fascinating, you'll notice that he had a robe, and the, the length of a robe of a king spoke to his glory. You'll notice that this robe actually filled the temple. Now, that word for temple is interesting. It's not just any word for temple. It speaks of a specific place in the temple, the outer courts. Just think about this. The temple, the outer courts... As you probably know, God's temple looked a lot like the Garden of Eden, which was also located on a a mountain. And God's people met with God in the most holy place, much like Adam and Eve met with God in the Garden of Eden. Now, the outer courts reflect the world outside of the Garden. So God's robe, catch this, filling the outer courts is actually picturing God's glorious presence flooding down from his throne into the whole earth such that the whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see it? And above God are the seraphim, really a plural word for seraphs, winged snake creatures that were often pictured with kings. They would have them on their thrones and tombs and that kind of thing. Uh, They were a picture of royalty. But here what we have is a seraph or seraphim, multiple of these around them with these six wings. And with two, they were constantly in flight, constantly in motion to do the bidding of the Lord. And with two, we are told that they actually held them over their eyes to cover them from looking at God. Why? They were covering the eyes, not the ears, because they were fully devoted to doing whatever the Word of God said. And with two, they covered their feet. Now, we don't know why, but it it seems like the reason they covered their feet as a picture of the fact their ways would only be the ways that the Lord sent them upon. It was not for them to set their courses. It was for God. And God did this with these angels. What a vision. And these people of unclean lips in Isaiah that we just read about in Isaiah 5 who mockingly dared the transcendent Holy One of Israel to draw near in justice are here we find Isaiah coming before that very God. He has come. He has heard them. He has come. He is present before them. But catch this. What we find is the holy, holy, holy God is devoted and present. That seems so far off is actually devoted and present. Catch this. We find in this text that God is not just holy. The seraphs are actually singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now in Hebrew... Uh, repeating a word actually intensifies it. Uh, you'll remember in the book of Jonah when Jonah says they fearing, 
that it, it speaks of the fact that they were terrified before God. Well, nowhere else in the Bible do we have a word repeated three times other than in Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the only word that's, that's repeated three times which creates this unique kind of super superlative describing God. In other words, God is here intensely holy. Holy God hasn't just shown up. The holy, holy, holy God has come and He is standing before them to make Himself known. But what is holiness? In Scripture, God is clearly morally pure. That's absolutely true. With Him, there is no darkness at all. He is a God who is unlike anyone that we know. Our pastoral prayers are a great place to listen to the kinds of things that you ought to pray for. We pray for different things each week. Those things are things the Bible tells us to pray for. So pray for those things. Another great way to get involved in prayer, if you're not, is praying for the church. We have a membership directory. You can pray for the specific members of the church. I can't tell you what a joy it is. Great way to pray. Great way to be devoted to God. But catch this. It's not just about your upward relationship with God. That's not all that God calls for in His just and righteous, loving kindness that He calls us towards. Catch this. Your outward relationships with other people, they might say just as much or more about your holiness and your devotion to God. Your outward relationships with other people might say just as much or more about your holiness or devotion to God. In fact, Have you ever noticed that six of the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments are focused on how people treat other people? Like, yeah, if you keep God's law, it means you're going to treat people better. You're going to treat others in the way that looks like God, blessing them, loving them. Now, just think about that. Think about God. God cares about things like how kids honor their parents. God cares about that. If you're a kid, like, you don't honor your parents just because, like, you know you're supposed to. You, you, you do it because you know God says so and He made you and it's good for you. And God not only cares about men loving their wives, He does, brothers. He also cares about the way that you look at other men's wives. You're not to covet other wives. God, He not only cares about that. Your wife, He cares about your stuff. He cares about the stuff that you have. But not just the stuff that you have. He cares about how you look at other people's stuff. You're not to covet what other people have. Just think about that. Do you see how God's holiness, His devotion to justice connects with the way that we love others? God cares about our love for others. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 4-5, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But catch this. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And that love absolutely has to do with how we treat one another. Right living and love go hand in hand. And at its heart, moral purity is a question of devotion to loving God and one another. And the New Testament, hear me, says that that love for one another is actually expressed firstly, not only, but firstly in relationships that we have in the committed relationship of a local church. That's where we see the love of God on display in such a way that outsiders looking in are going... I know that those are disciples of Jesus. But there's another thing that we see here. Notice this. Second, God saves and sends those confessing sin. God saves and sends those confessing sins. Now don't miss this. In the shadow of His holy God, 
Isaiah's prophetic woe in verse 5 is a recognition that he's a sinner before a God who is devoted to exalting himself in justice. He is absolutely devoted to this God. And notice what he says, whom this God who is devoted to his justice. Notice what he says in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people who are of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is lost or ruined, maybe even silent, like somebody would have been after a disaster or a funeral. Why is God's presence disastrous for Isaiah? It's because he's part of the people of unclean lips that he spoke six woes against in chapter 5. He accepted unclean speech in a society and he didn't seek to correct it and might have even been part of it. But don't miss this. Never does Isaiah see himself so clearly as he does at the throne of God. When he sees the King, the Lord of hosts. And notice what Isaiah doesn't say here. When he comes before the king and he sees himself as clearly as he's ever seen himself, when the holy God who's devoted to his justice and righteousness, notice that Isaiah doesn't say, man, it's a good thing that nobody's perfect at all, right God? I mean, it's good that we all have our sin and stuff, right? I mean, I'm just like the rest of them. And they're kind of worse than me. Is that the way that Isaiah talks before God when he comes before him? No. When the holy God who is devoted to being exalted in justice or setting things right, and he knows that he is wrong, there is nowhere for him to hide. You see, he doesn't run and try to hide his sin with excuses. He doesn't try to hide his sin with saying, well, it's not as bad as that guy. He doesn't do any of that. Notice that he confesses. That's what we have to do when we truly see God in ourselves. We don't hide our sin, we confess our sin. Two things that we need to know about confession. Catch this, don't miss this. One, it affirms God's standards are right and just. When you are confessing your sin, you're not just saying something about yourself. You're saying something about your good God. That He is just. That His standards are right. And you are affirming that. That's the foundation of your confession. But there's a second thing that you see there in your confession, and that's this, that we are confessing that we intentionally disobeyed it. That we disobeyed it. We knew what was right, we saw it, and yet we did the wrong thing anyway. And we know that denying sin or downplaying it, we know what it will do. See, don't miss God's response to Isaiah's confession. It is a great response. You don't want to hide your sin, you want to deal with it, and confession is the way to do it. And notice what happens when Isaiah confesses it in verses 6 to 8. First, God saves Isaiah atoning for his sins. Do you see that? Notice in verses 6 to 7 what happens. Look there with me. Isaiah, he tells us exactly what he does. He says, in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What a good message for Isaiah. You'll notice here that there's a beautiful picture of God providing for his people. Think about this. What was it that Isaiah confessed? 
Wasn't it that he was a man of unclean lips? That he was one of those from Isaiah 5 who were using speech uncleanly, and they were unclean before God? Don't miss God's beautiful response meeting Isaiah at the exact point of his confessed need. And God touched those same lips with a coal from his holy altar, drew near to him with that coal from his holy altar. And this altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifice for the sins of his people. As Alec Moyer says, this altar that was in the temple represents substitutionary sacrifice that brings atonement, propitiation, like we talked about last week, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation. And all of those words about the nature of what his sacrifice does is actually encapsulated in this little symbolic live pole. All of that in this little image, the substitutionary sacrifice of God. This is really what I would call and what theologians call an abbreviated version of penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big phrase. I'm sorry for using it. It's important though and it's good. Here's why. It perfectly encapsulates what God has done for us. Think about this. Atonement means a price has been paid to a just judge to restore relationship. Someone has has done something that they are guilty of. A price has to be paid to make things right. Now in the Old Testament, the price to be made when you sinned against God was a sacrificial animal to pay the penalty, penal substitution, for sins. But that only foreshadowed those sacrifices, the greater sacrifice that was to come when Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, would come and lay down his life on the cross to pay our penalty in full once for all by laying down his life in our place to purchase atonement, oneness with God, reconciliation with him because he is a just God and needed to be satisfied. Don't miss this. I think this is so important. You know, I think that we might have been giving a really quick definition for mercy that might not fully be giving God the glory that he deserves. Now, all of you have probably heard this definition before, right? What is mercy? Not receiving what? The punishment you deserve, right? And that's a good quick definition, but here's the problem. It's incomplete. It's like half true. It's not that God is a just God who sometimes just like skips out on justice. And he says, you know what? You know, I'm not feeling like being just right now. I think I'll be loving. And so I'm just going to like pretend this didn't happen. How does that sound? That's not God. Now see, the, the reason that God is able to show mercy to us and not give us the punishment that we deserve is because it has been paid in full already by Jesus Christ for those who have put their faith in him. Do you see it? God is always just, even in mercy. The picture that we have in the Bible of mercy is one of the clearest pictures of the fact God is just and must be just because his justice must be satisfied and was satisfied fully in Christ. It's exactly what we find in mercy. We don't receive the punishment we deserve because we devote our lives to Jesus who paid our sins in full so that God is both just and the justifier. The atonement has been made. We are reconciled with God. And God's justice, hear me, was most exalted in the most merciful place on earth, that is the cross. And so when you think about the cross, glory in the mercy, but also glory in the justice of God on display, which was actually wrought on your behalf in Christ. If you're a non-Christian, 
Let me just talk to you for a minute. This is, I think, central to what it means to understanding how Christians are Christians and what you need most. Did you know that God is completely devoted to his justice? See, here's the problem. God's righteous standard. How do I know that? Because his word tells us so. We fail to devote ourselves to loving God and others according to the standards that he set. Well, let me just ask you this. One day, you are going to come before God like Isaiah did. In an even more profound way, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, what's your plea going to be on that day? What are you going to plea when you come before Jesus, when he comes to judge the living and the dead? Don't miss this. There are no excuses on that day. The only plea that you will have is Jesus and his blood. Only Jesus can make you right with God and save you from the punishment which is just for your sin. Only God can do that, and only he can do that in Christ. And here's the good news. If you put your faith in Christ today, trusting him with your life, devoting yourself to him, you can know that Jesus paid the debt for your sin in full at the cross to reconcile you to God. You don't have to fear God anymore when you come before him. You can know that you have been saved by God. And not only that, it's not just that he takes away the, the price that you owed him in debt. We're told that even better that, he charges the very righteousness of Christ to your account. So don't leave without putting your faith in Christ today. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But if you're a Christian, don't miss this. We see another thing for you in this text, and here it is. God always sends those he saves. Did you catch that? God always sends those he saves. In other words, this isn't just a verse for prophets. It is for the prophet Isaiah, but I think it's more than that. So notice that God always sends those he saves. We see that in verse 8. So again, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord. And here's what it says. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And catch Isaiah's response. When Isaiah hears God calling for who will go, notice that what happens. He's not silenced. He's sent. He's not destroyed. He's deployed. He goes out for God. And here's what he says. Here I am. Send me. You can send me. Now, maybe when you read this, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, who is the us that Isaiah will go for? It's a good question. This is a plural of, of consultation. What that means, uh, don't really want to get into, but I would say that I don't, I'm not saying this is the Trinity, but it is interesting if you read the New Testament, what the New Testament says about this text. See, in the New Testament, uh, we find in John 12 that Jesus actually says, after he quotes these verses we're about to read, that, that actually this verse is a vision that Isaiah has of Jesus. It seems to say that in John 12. But not only that, we find that Acts 28-25 relates these same verses to the Holy Spirit. So from the New Testament, they sort of view the, the triune God at work at display in this event that's happening. Now, I'm not saying again this is a trinity, I'm just saying it's interesting. But sure, sure this launches Isaiah's ministry as a prophet. We see that. And we'll see what kind of ministry that will be in a second. But remember this. This side of the cross, saving and sending always come together. Saving and sending always come together. In Matthew 28, you'll remember that Jesus reinforces this. When at the end of his ministry on earth, after he's been raised from the dead, he ends the book by saying this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now just think about this for a second. Does this sound like the vision of an otherworldly kind of king? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Here's what Jesus says. Now therefore what? Go. 
You see that? Authority, disciples go. And what do they do? They make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Do you see that? There's an understanding that if you're a disciple, that you're going and you're making disciples who will go. Now, what was one of the things that God, or that Jesus, told his disciples that he needs to teach others to observe? The fact that you make disciples who will go and make disciples, right? (laughs) So uh, that's one of the things that he's teaching them in the very moment that he teaches them this. We are a people who when we come to Christ, part of it means that we were going out to make more God imagers as we teach them about Christ, teaching them to follow him, teaching them to be devoted to him. See, he sent his son to save us and now sends us to join him in the mission of saving others. God saves and sends. Don't miss this. God always sends those he saves. Whether he is sending you next door or to the other side of the planet with Mark to go visit Indonesia. Like God is taking you, he is sending you to go and to make his son known. God always has been descending God. The purpose of your life, like maybe you didn't come for this, but I think the Bible is clear. The purpose of your life and my life is to become more devoted to Jesus, more so and to help others become more devoted to Jesus, that God might be glorified to the ends of the earth ever increasingly so. See, God created you to make him known all over the planet, beginning with where you are right now and where God's placed you. We are like the train of the robe of God, pouring out from his throne into all the earth to make him known. And do you remember the promise of King Jesus that he gives you and me as we share Christ? Does he say, and while you do this, I'm going to be way far away? No, he says, and while you do this, and lo, remember this, verse 20 of Matthew 28, I am with you always. My presence is with you as you go. The Holy One of Israel draws near to us as we go to make disciples. God is with us. But catch this. God's word leads some to confession, and this is terrifying. It leads others to suppression. God's word leads some to confession and others to suppression. Did you see that in verses 9 to 13? Here the holy king that saves those also hardens those who suppress the truth. The same one that saves those who confess hardens those who suppress the truth. Don't miss this. Isaiah receives one of the most difficult ministries ever. But I believe that God tells him these verses because he wants to prepare them for what God, prepare Isaiah for what God is actively doing. Listen just to what he signed up for. This is one of the scariest ministries that you'll hear of. Here's what he says in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 9. Look there with me. Verse 9 to 13, here's what he says. After he says, here am I, send me, it says, and he, or God said... Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. The land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Just think about this. Here we find, you'll notice two things. 
First, that Isaiah's job is actually to prophesy, preach, proclaim the word of God to this people, not my people. And so often when God speaks of Israel or Judah, he speaks of my people, but now it's this people, a people who are not living as his people. And God here says that he will preach to them until their hearts are dull and their ears for listening are heavy and their eyes are blind. In other words, God says the prophecies that he can expect the results are that God's people will respond to God's word with hearts that grow harder and harder. Be encouraged that God calls us to be faithful in telling his word and sharing his gospel. And success, if you judge it based on faithfulness to God, might be rejection of the message and more judgment. You ever thought about that? Sometimes when we share the gospel and when people reject it, we think we failed, but God's word never fails. It's actually a fearful thing for the person that rejects it. It's faithful for you, it's fearful for them. Be faithful. I'm not saying that you can't like, do it in a way that's not helpful, that you can't get better at sharing the gospel with others, that you don't need to love them well, but God always promises to be present with his word. And on the last day, you and me, we're going to be judged not based on success measured by human standards or based on our giftedness or how fine-tuned we are. We're going to be judged based on whether or not we were faithful with God has given us. But there's a second more important word here, a scary one. That's this. Notice that God says he is sending Isaiah to harden their hearts through the speaking of God's word. This is a judicial hardening of God's people. This is terrifying, but not utterly unique in the Bible. You'll remember that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh when he resisted his word. And later, you'll remember that when Jesus came, he quotes these very verses to the Jewish leaders. Jesus himself. And Jesus says that they were spiritually blind and proud. They resisted the very living word of God, the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw. They heard him preach and they rejected him. Have you ever thought about that? There are people who saw Jesus face to face and heard the gospel from the living gospel himself and rejected it. Just remember that when you're sharing the gospel. God is sovereign even over his word. You might think that Jesus failed because they did not receive the word, but Jesus explains that God's word never fails. Sometimes the gospel hardens and repels sinners who refuse to repent. Please don't miss this. Just as Isaiah 55, 11 says, God's word never returns void. And it always succeeds in accomplishing what God intends. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And similarly, John Frame, writing of these verses, says this, the power of God's word brings incredible blessings to you when you hear it in faith with the disposition to obey. But it will harden the heart that hears God's word with indifference, resistance, and rebellion. In other words, God is already judging his people even before the nations come. Even before external enemies show up, God is doing an internal work that he will continue to do. He's searing the consciences and hardening their hearts through his word being preached. And God's word often, hear me, it often works in very imperceptible ways, right? Did you know that? 
Sometimes God is at work in you when you don't even know it. You're hearing the Word of God, and you think you are in control of the Word that's being received, and yet the Word itself is shaping you in ways that you don't even notice. In fact, sometimes other people notice the way that you've been reshaped before you do. You ever seen that happen? People see changes in you through His Word before you've even noticed it? In the same way, sometimes when you hear the Word of God and you think that you can just reject it and you'll deal with it later, and you know, obedience isn't the call for today, that's a call for another day, you don't recognize that actually you're not as in control as you think of God and His sovereign Word. It is actually hardening your heart towards Him. God never comes to you and says, hey, here's a word, that all right? If it's not, that's fine, you can deal with it later. God always says, I am the authority of authorities, the King of kings, high and lifted up, there's none like me. Do you ever respond with indifference to a word that comes from that throne? Never. Every word is from that throne. When you're looking at the scripture, the word of God. Don't be one of those who don't respond in obedience or pursue it in obedience and find your heart hardening. This morning, you may think nothing is happening, but God's at work in your heart. How do I know that? Because God's word tells me so. God is right now drawing some of you to devotion to God as seen by confessing sins, repenting of not loving God and loving others as you should. Some of you, he is working a work that later you will give yourself to vocational ministry. It could be that you have a friend that needs to hear Christ that he's already preparing you for. God's doing something in you. God is moving you towards change. Now, some here may think that they are unaffected, but God's word, catch me, could be hardening your heart. Have you ever considered that you're not being moved by God's word and that it might not be an external problem? The speaker's not good enough. The lights and the fog machine aren't here. You haven't had the right tune on the, you know, the guitar. Like it's, it's all these external problems. My wife and my husband, they just don't let me concentrate and they bug me all the time. And if those external problems were just away, like I'd be good with God. And maybe in the midst of all of that, What you don't realize is the problems out here are just a foreshadowing of the greater problem in your heart that it's hard towards God and therefore it's hard towards others. Some here may think that they are unaffected by God's word and yet you are hardening and you don't even know it. Christian, let me just encourage you, don't approach God's word cavalierly thinking that you can listen without responding. That's non-Christian. Don't delay if you sense God calling you to righteousness where you've been unfaithful. When you do that, that's how you begin to sear your conscience. You harden it towards the things of God and His character. If you continue to disobey God knowingly, your conscience will become hard and you will become less sensitive to the things of God. And if you're a non-Christian, let me just encourage you, don't delay coming to God today. God has called you to come to Him. Think about this. If you're a non-Christian, what if your heart only becomes harder towards God because you refuse to repent and believe? And as you think you're delaying it, every day you delay, it's actually making it harder for you to respond as God has called you to. Praise God, though, that not all hope is lost. You might think that all is over for Israel as they are burned and then burned again, and then they're left with nothing except, did you catch this on that last verse? A stump, which is the holy seed of Israel. A seed. All that's left is a seed. All the many people that God created for His people in Israel... Now all that's left is a little lonely seed. And yet from that seed, God promises to build his kingdom. Notice the footnote of hope that Isaiah so typically attaches the end of judgment in verse 13. He says the holy seed 
is his stumps. In other words, Israel, though they'll be, they'll be devastated by Assyria, and then later uh, Judah by Babylon, and though they're almost destroyed, God will glorify himself through a single holy seed, King Jesus, who would be fully devoted to God in his justice, and through whom he would create a new people for himself. So just remember, the same holy king who saves those who confess their sins hardens those who suppress the truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have come before you, Father, we have heard a terrifying word from you, Lord, about the nature of your word and the nature of our hearts. But God, we praise you this morning that you haven't just given us our sickness and our malady, but you've also given us the solution, which is only to be found in Christ. And so God, this morning, I pray for all of us. I pray for those of us who love Jesus, who are devoted to Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us not to receive your word and to suppress it or to to run from it, Lord, but that you would help us to seek to obey it, that you would help us to become more and more devoted to you. None of us are perfect, but God, you are perfecting us. And Lord, we pray that our devotion to you would grow and grow. We also pray, Father, for those uh, this morning who do not know your son, Jesus, those who cannot expect mercy on the day of justice. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that they would not leave this room without confessing their sins and turning for them and devoting their lives to Christ, where the only mercy that is to be found is to be found fully in the one who has paid the price for our sins, the debt that we owe to you in full. Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Lord, do all this, that your name might be exalted, that you might be exalted in justice. It is the great name of your Son that we do pray, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.